You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Joining us this portion of our program is Dr. Gay Bradshaw. Gay is executive director of the Carullo Center in Jacksonville, Oregon. She holds doctorate degrees in ecology and psychology and has published, taught, and lectured widely in these fields, both in the United States and internationally. She is the author of Elephants on the Edge, What Animals Teach Us About Humanity, a Yale University 2009 release. It's an in-depth psychological portrait of elephants in captivity and in the wild. Gay's work focuses on trans-species psychology, the theory and methods for the study and care of animals, their psychological well-being, and multi-species culture. And as we'll discuss this portion of our program, her research expertise includes the effects of violence, trauma, and recovery on elephants, grizzly bears, chimpanzees, parrots, and other species in captivity. And extraordinarily, she established the new field of trans-species psychology upon which the work and the principles of her center, the Carullo Center, are based. Gay, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Hi, good evening. Your work, which I read recently on my trip to New York, Elephants on the Edge, was to say the least putting me on the edge. Um, let's talk a little bit first in a broad spectrum way what what it means when you say trans-species psychology. Well, the conventional models or ideas about human and other animal brains and minds has been based on what you call a two-tier system. In other words, we have um, one idea, one theory about how the human mind and brain works, and then we have another one which is separate from, uh, for other animals. And essentially, trans-species psychology, which is a field that I established, really integrates data and theory from neuroscience, psychology, and ethology that really speaks to the fact that we share um, pretty much the same. So in other words, you don't need two different ways of looking at human and animal minds. You can use the same theory, the same kind of perspective to really understand what animals are thinking and feeling just like we do with humans. And certainly, as you show so eloquently, elephants on the edge, that their society being dismembered by human beings has had a drastic effect on their culture, and we'll look at that, but you also point a portrait that it is very similar to our own human species when we have fatherless homes. Yeah, I think the term you use, dismembered, is a, is a very good image um, because we tend to forget that animal cultures, something like the elephants, have really a vast civilization. And so when we're really understanding elephant experience and elephant lives, we really need to understand it in a historical way where we're looking at elephants that used to extend all over the continent of Africa and in Asia. And today, because of hunting and culling, which is system, you know, systemic killing, poaching, translocation when you're moving animals around, and, also, and habitat destruction, what's happened is the elephant society has been broken up into small pieces, fragmented, dismembered, as you put it, with the result that a lot of the children elephants are fatherless and many times motherless. When you look at the work that you do at your center, and it's quite remarkable, both in terms of broadening the understanding, and we will look at the way different people can participate, 
How would you describe the change that transspecies psychology brings to the way in which we think about animals? I mean, Dr. Mark Beckoff and I recently talked about the culling of of the wild wolf. We've talked about the sort of the destruction of the wild horse. I mean, it almost seems that this, if it's wild, human beings somehow or other want to dominate it. Yeah, um, there. You know, I guess the thing is, is, is the science talking about how animals have feelings and, and, you know, ways of thinking like we do in culture and, and all sorts of experiences that we usually just say, well, th- that's unique to humans. You know, having that understanding is really challenging us fundamentally, ethically. Mm-hmm. Um, the right uh, to make these assumptions that we can, without any kind of qualm, um, have a law that says we can kill wolves. There's a law that it's legal to kill a bear or to make the presumption that the bear doesn't have the same kind of rights that a human has. And really what the science is, it's been there for a long time. It's not just me. Right. <laughs> I happen to like pull the pieces together and call it transspecies psychology. But um, it's really been built over hundreds of years, even before Darwin. And so the whole foundation of science is really speaking to the fact that we share with animals the same mind and emotions. And the differences is almost at the level of differences in cultures, like Italians and Finns and um, Americans and whatever, rather than at these vast differences in terms of how we look at this big grand canyon between ourselves and other animals. So we're really now, the science is really, you know, calling us to say, well, if that's the case, then we need to have the same kinds of considerations and laws that we have to respect ourselves other species. Yet when you look, and of course you don't know this about me, but I've been covering the issue of animal suffering my whole life since mm-hmm. as, as a young child and then certainly as a broadcaster have made it a, a core of the programming I've done because I've never quite understood the disconnect between the feeling heart of the human in relationship to the animal kingdom, I mean, personally speaking. And yet when I try intellectually to understand how a scientist and so c- can cold-heartedly torture animals and call it medical research that somehow or other is benefiting somebody, I just don't see how out of that kind of torture and suffering anything positive ever really comes. Well, a number of people, um, psychiatrists and psychologists in an increasing number, are now saying um, you, you, to understand trauma, to understand the mind, to understand human suffering is not only unethical, but it's not viable to do it through traumatizing and making someone else suffer. Um, you know, in one of the chapters in my book, Chapter 11, where I, I, I discuss this one elephant, uh, Dunda, who was almost beaten to death in, the San, in San Diego about two or three decades ago, um, is this whole, that the human mind, the modern human mind has created a very complex way of dissociating or distancing, you called it, uh, from understanding, feeling, and connecting, and empathy with other species, and ourselves, Mm -hmm. uh, and with other people. So it's a very profound uh, characteristic that really marks our culture, that we can watch something on television, see terrible violence, and see terrible things, or even, you know, even see that in front of us um, to other animals, and yet not really make a change or stop it or even feel it. Now, sometimes we feel it, but then we ignore really what that means and that the suffering of someone who may look different is no different than our own. 
And so when you look at the numbers of species that you work with trying to rehabilitate from, as you point out on your website, um, trauma and violence as a result of humans, it's a rather broad spectrum. I mean, we could start with the millions of rats <laughs> and the yeah. chimpanzees. I mean, how, how do you go about working with the kind of mindset that exists even in animal, what they call animal husbandry in in raising animals to eat, and then the scientific community that still uses animals for research, and then there's also this entertainment industry that uses animals for our amusement, but does it through a great deal of torture. Yes. Well, the, we established the Karula Center for the very purpose of really bringing the science and the understanding of animals as sentient beings to the public and to the science community. Um, we're a research and education center, and it's our belief and our commitment that by bringing this in understanding, um, we call on science a lot because science has been the episteme, the knowledge-making body that has legitimized this kind of behavior against animals. And so we really call on science to say, look, if you look within the scientific literature, you look at the data, you look at the theory, it all points to the fact that animals are sentient, meaning animals can feel and think the way we do. And so what we do is we really try hard in various venues. We publish in scientific journals, top scientific journals. We you know, give lectures in different kinds of professional societies, veterinary schools, medical schools. We have um, uh, education programs in K through 12 that we're developing. And so we work on a number of different fronts to bring that kind of understanding and bring that kind of insight into understanding who um, animals really are. And then we have another component to our work, which is where it's not just learning, it's actually taking that knowledge and putting it on the ground, putting it into action. We call it educate to action. And the idea is when you have that understanding, not letting it just sit inside, but saying, okay, what does this actually mean? How can I take what I know now and implement it, change my life in order to help the lives of other animals? And you clearly, I, what I love about the work that your center is doing is not only the clarity you bring, but as you point out, sort of the, the synthesis and the integration of many disciplines that bring us to, to a scientific understanding of consciousness, not just our consciousness, but our relationship, as you point out, interspecies. And you say that there's three themes, heal, respect, and renew. Will you touch on those for a moment? Well, um you know, as you said, it, we are synthetic, um, and again, that's part of a broader movement that's happening um, and that's returning. A lot of indigenous cultures have had this very holistic, synthetic view mm -hmm. of nature and ourselves in nature. So a lot of the work, like I said, we emphasize the science, and, and the main reason is because science has been alienated from this whole notion of animals as sentient beings. So we're bringing science, if you want to look at it, we're bringing science back into the fold in terms of this larger world view of, of holism and connection. And the three areas that you mentioned are sort of cross-cutting themes. The healing is where we have a focus and we focus on looking at specific cases of animal trauma recovery. Um, we've worked, my book, for example, is, is one case where I focused on looking at trauma, psychological wounding in elephants, both in captivity and in the wild, and then looked at individuals who are in sanctuary like Daphne Sheldrick in Nairobi 
and Carol Buckley, who founded the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee, looking at them as healers, understanding them as latter-day psychologists or psychiatrists, but natural in terms of their animal healing. And so one of the things that we do is we are bringing attention to the fact that animals suffer emotional trauma, suffer psychological trauma, and then we basically explore ways in which they can't not only prevent the trauma but actually help them heal um, to somehow recover and gain a sense of their self again. The second area that we work in is we call respect. And that's really taking these concepts of transspecies psychology and traumatology and carrying them and translating them ethically to the wildlife with whom we live. Again, this is having to do with the elephants and chimpanzees, but also here in North America where we live with grizzly bears, with cougars and raccoons and all the other animals and birds that we live with. And the idea is that taking the notion that animals are sentient, animals have culture, they have social, emotional lives, and that compels us to change our ethics, to change the way we live with them, to respect them as having, um, having what we call agency or self-determination, just like any other indigenous people, just like we um, demand for ourselves. So our second program theme is respect, wildlife self-determination, very much like the civil rights movement that we have in this country. The third theme that we work on is renewal. And essentially, that is related, but it's this idea of how it kind of reflects back on, on us as humans. What are the changes that we can do in our life? How can we renew? How can we recreate the way we live in fundamental ways so that we live ethically with non-human nature, the plants and the animals that surround us? What are the ways that we can actually radically change our culture so that we're all healthy, and live in a compassionate way. It's a remarkable undertaking with an obviously broad-scale approach, and because of it, it looks like it will pioneer a better understanding and, and, and I think a very doable way to educate from children to adults this relationship between our consciousness and the consciousness, as you point out, of whether it's the vegetable, the mineral, the animal, etc. We're going to take a little break, Gay, and then we'll come back. And what I'd like to do is look at this wonderful program you all have um, about the ancient bones, sacred bones journeys. And we'll start there when we return. Her extraordinary book, Elephants on the Edge, What Animals Teach Us About Humanity. And I do want to come back to your book before the evening's over, but I wanted to be sure, Gay, to talk about the Karulos Center's Work with Sacred Bones project. I think it's a magnificent development of a way people can participate in the changes you're talking about without having to be in a formal university setting. Yeah, well, that's the sort of the operative thing is um, Sacred Bones, we're very excited about it. It's a, it's a new program, and we call it our Educate to Action program. Um, the whole idea of it was is that every day we're sort of bombarded with all of the, the disasters in the world, and, and the Gulf Coast oil spill was one, you know, perfect example. Um, this terrible feeling, terrible grief and the sense of impotence. How do we really make a change? How can we do something? And there are a lot of different ways. But we decided to develop the sacred bone so that people could learn about animals and then actually put that into what we call transformative ethical change and on-the-ground action. And so basically, 
it really is a kind of a, a synergistic, and you called it synthetic approach, because core to the core to this curriculum is this whole concept of atonement. And it sounds somewhat esoteric, but it's really saying, you know, all of these things have happened through time, and we really need to take stock. We need, really need to recognize. We need to take responsibility and then transform that sense of responsibility and commitment to, as I said, on the ground change. So essentially what it is is that it's an online program, and it's each. Um, we have a set of different curricula that we call journeys. It's very much like Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Right. And what you do is that it's each curriculum, each journey, is built around the story, the autobiography of an animal, a threatened and endangered um, species, a sea turtle. We're, being, we're beginning our, our curriculum with the hawksbill sea turtle and Caribbean reef sharks. And essentially what we do is we take this autobiography of this individual who has been illegally killed and used for some reason and building understanding about who that animal is. It's in, you know, all the first part of the course is called Remembrance, and that's really about the science, the natural history, law, conservation. In the case of the sea turtle, we're working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Office of Law and Enforcement, and they have a case file where they've given us information, and the remains, this is where the sacred bones come in. These are the remains of sea turtles that were illegally killed and then they were confiscated back um, in an undercover operation. So the first part of our, our curriculum in the journey is learning who this hawksbill sea turtle is. These turtles are endangered. They're, they're one of seven different species that roam all over the oceans um, in the world. And they, 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 for years they travel in the ocean, and then they pull themselves up on shore and lay their eggs. And in this case, they were killed. And what this is doing is we learn about the ocean system. We learn about who this individual was who had a mind, who had emotions, and who had a family. We learn about that in the first part of the course called Remembrance. In the second part of the course, it's, it's called Return. And that's when, this is when the individual, the, the student or the participant, actually starts to go either virtually or physically, returns in symbolic repatriation, brings the remains of that sea turtle back to his or her place of origin. And we have two journeys. One is to Hawaii, which is where a lot of sea turtles live and travel, and the other one is in uh, the Georgia sea turtle in, um, off the coast in, in the United States. And so what the student does is during that is their ethical journey. And it's their, it's their personal ethical introspection, bringing the sea turtle back, going, in a sense, back through time. And that's where that constant, that concept of atonement is, recognizing responsibility. Um, during this part of the course, the student then creates their own, what we call, compact with nature. And that's really making a contract in the sense of saying, I have this new relationship. I have this new understanding. How does this translate in my everyday life? And it's making a commitment with nature, with the sea turtle, of how this understanding is going to translate into everyday living. The third component of the, of the curriculum then is called renewal. And that's actually taking this ethical transformation from the second part of the course and translating it to on-the-ground action. And we're working with a number of partners in Costa Rica, in Hawaii, and in the Southeast United States for the Hawksville Sea Turtle Journey 
um, where students and participants can work with these different organizations in the Caribbean and places to help ongoing conservation efforts that will aid the sea turtle and help restore their community again. So it's a whole cycle in which individual transformation is coupled with the revivification of an animal and the restoration of an animal society. It's a beautiful sequence, remembrance, return, and renewal. It's it's almost theological, though I don't want to put it in a religious setting. It reminds me very much of when Moses and everybody was preparing to leave Egypt, and Moses went looking for the bones of Joseph because he had promised to bring Joseph's bones back to the Holy Land, which eventually Joshua did. But it, it it's it's interesting how what you've done is guided a person into the heart so that it's not just intellectual, you know, numbers and figuring and doing, but it's it's a broadening of the landscape of the heart. So when when you do this, I mean what occurred to me is that anybody could take that sequence of remembrance, return and renewal in their own community and whether it's a particular bird that is having trouble in their community or a fox or some other form of wildlife that is at issue in their region, they could do the exact same thing that you've described with, an, with a particular species that they are in contact with. Yes. We're developing this curriculum. Our, our ultimate goal is have a whole library. We'll, we'll, we're working with sharks um, next and then tiger, macaw, and so we'll have a whole library. But individuals can do this on their own. We're providing a structure. Right. The whole idea we would like is it to become to take off as a cultural movement mm-hmm. in the sense where it is very personal. As you said in the cycle, we begin with the mind, with the science and the law and the conservation, and then the second part we move to the heart, and then we then move to the body, which is the action component. One of the things we're trying to do is really be a facilitator because the other component of this is building community, building a common culture and community of people who are interconnecting with nature who are making a connection and making a commitment to, to be in service to wildlife. And I so mean, what we would like to do also is to connect people with ongoing uh, organizations and conservation efforts. For example, in Costa Rica, there's an organization called Pretoma, and they are very um, hardworking to stop the shark finning business and to also help sea turtles. And so we have these different organizations to build social capacity because it's not just the sea turtle. It's not just the shark. As you said, it's the fox. It's the wolf. It's the grizzly bear in our communities. And we need everyone to participate. And so the idea of this is to really build capacity and build community through this action. You know, and it, it it's interesting to me. There was a story, one of those horrible stories here in Baltimore of some kids setting a dog on fire and another mm-hmm. beating a puppy to death and, you know, and finding out that these are not very healthy humans, obviously. And and yet at the same time, while everybody can feel that, be compassionate and respond with outcry, very few people think twice when we go into the grocery store and buy hamburgers or buy some nice chicken or or whatever, or eat a hot dog or whatever it is. And, and, and it's so interesting to me how, as human beings, myself included, how we can compartmentalize. Well, as I said, you know, I say that in my book on Elephants on the Edge. That has really come to, I mean, you can go back to Descartes. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone seems to blame him. Um, but it's really our culture is built on um, compartmentalization. 
And essentially, this is the psychological, emotional, and social fragmentation, I would say spiritual fragmentation, mm-hmm. that has occurred. Very much so. So as you notice, you picked up already on our website, a lot of our our projects, a lot of our scenes are very, they're, they're, they're in the cycle. The One part of our logos is the Ouroboros, which is the, the snake coming onto itself, which mm-hmm. is transformation. Mm-hmm. So it's this whole notion of a cycle, and, and again, transformation through that, through that motion and participation. Um, one of the key things is remembrance. Um, as I said, it's the first component. Uh, it deals with the science and law, but there's more to it because we have history there. Each one of our journeys in the sacred bones is linked to the history of an indigenous culture, indigenous people, who have also experienced the genocide, who have also experienced the loss of their culture through what we want to call Western modern you know, civilization, etc. So essentially what remembrance is, is that it's that peace that's inside of us, that however you want to call it genetically, <laughs> whatever, right, right. however you want to explain it, still holds that history that has not been addressed. And so through that, what we're really trying to do is to heal these past wounds and do so in a way that moves us forward into compassion and, and ethical living with nature. Obviously, you're completely committed with great passion for the work you do. And, and sometimes for myself... Um, I've been involved in so many different things during my lifetime that I get to a point where probably like many people in our audience, it all seems so overwhelming. And I and I think that from my vantage point of your approach, it's a very wise one because even a minimal change exponentially adds up to an enormous shift. I mean, it makes me think a little bit about how recycling finally became a municipal practice. Right. It started from the 60s and the 70s and then finally into the 80s going into the schoolrooms and stuffing children's backpacks with little recycling notices. It, it happened really from youth education. Yes. How do you see this in that pattern of the, the new youth, let's call it that, yeah. having perhaps a greater awareness than other generations? Well, I I don't know whether there's a greater awareness or not. I, you know, I think it's just a different kind of awareness. I think that um, what we're really at right now is we're at, you know, you call a paradigm shift. The old ways aren't working. Um, You know, things in terms of our own human society and things in nature are falling apart. And, again, Sacred Bones and the other programs that we're developing are ways which we're trying to support and guide a transition from sort of an old paradigm, an old way of looking at the world that has turned out to be quite violent and destructive into something that is more holistic, healthy, and interconnected with nature. And so Sacred Bones is one example where we really are working with the individual. We're saying, here's some tools, here's some ways of guiding and participating, but it's you personally. You make your personal compact with nature. And you tailor what your capacity is and what kind of path that you want to take to, to, to going forward in that way. And that's something we feel very strongly about, is it is, just what you're saying. But it's very personal, and it's what, what people really feel. And that, to me, is the most important, that Viktor Frankl used to, you know, talked about meaning-making. Mm-hmm. That change will only come and sustain if it's meaningful to individuals. And through this, build a culture of commonality. It's beautifully articulated, and it's and it's just a wondrous perspective about 
are are stepping into the breach basically that our culture has created so that we can awaken to our own divinity. I mean, for me, it's about reverence for all life. And yes. sometimes it becomes a fractal. And in this case, we're talking about animals. On another occasion, we might be talking about children. On another occasion, you know, we might be talking about trees. So when you look at all of these things, and I'd like you to just think about it for a moment because we have to take another break, how this sea change happens when at the same time we have a culture that spends most of its resources on war. And so for me, there's always sort of this um, disconnect between what those who are sort of in this new paradigm are saying and doing, which certainly this program has always been a part of in its two decades. And my husband and I and many like us, the cultural creatives around the planet, have been involved in our whole lifetimes. And yet still, when we look at the the movements of the world as a mass movement, it's it's a disassembling that is, to say the least, very disconcerting. So for those in my audience going, yep, there goes Zoe and Gay. They're talking about all this great stuff they can do, and yet the world's going to fall apart before they get to it. Our guest is Dr. Gay Bradshaw, a wonderful website, www.carulos.org. Kay, one of the things in reading your book, and, and it's true, I found it a very difficult book to read because I'm such an empath. I'm weeping all the way on the train to New York City. And then finally I had to stop and then finish the book in the afternoon today, knowing you and I would be speaking. But when you wrote this book... Um, I, I guess you knew that there are a lot of us who would read it and it would really be painful. Um, I don't think I did, actually. <laughs> well, uh, let me tell you. <laughs> it probably sounds pretty heartless, but um, honestly, I, I really was caught up in, um, you know, giving voice to uh, the elephant. Telling the story. really articulating what I felt was an important message, as I spoke of earlier, saying... No, science, which again, um, being the knowledge body in our culture, in the past has said, no, 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 and these animals don't have feelings, and they don't have a civilization, they're not like us. I was so bent on expressing it and articulating it and giving voice to the individual elephants that I encountered either in real person or in literature and stories. Um, giving voice to them. Well, you so did. I heard their voice loud and clear. <laughs> no, well, it's. I think that it's testimony to the fact that you accomplished it because it was so real, it was so painful to hear the tragedy of their lives and the sorrow that they experience in the mourning that they go through and the discontinuity that has occurred in their culture. Before the evening's over, though, and that is soon, I want to be sure to address the issue of zoos and aquariums and places like that, because there's a great deal said these days that zoos are the place that will preserve species because of interbreeding and because we're raising animals in captivity and they've never known any other way. And it sounds to me like let's raise some children in prisons because, you know, what, what, why not, right? They will have never known any other way. No, in tongue-in-cheek. How do you feel about these institutions in general and, and the direction that they're headed? Well, again, this is the, a theme that's in my book and essentially the basis uh, for, for making some kind of, um, you know, response or reflecting on these kinds of institutions. Again, you have to start, um, well, this is what I do, is say, what do we know about 
elephants in this case. It's, it's having the same thing with other animals, but we'll focus on elephants. What do we know about elephants in terms of their feelings, in terms of how they perceive the world, in terms of their emotions and their relationships and their values, their ethics, and understanding that the way their mind, the structures, as I say, the structures and processes of an elephant brain are comparable to those of humans. And when we understand that parity, when we understand that symmetry, then essentially when we look at institutions of captivity such as zoos and circuses or pets in the sense of pet trade and things like that with and other medical, animals. Medical um, institutions you, who do research, you, yeah. I'm sorry? I said in medical institutions who do yeah, research. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're seeing that, there really is no difference than the parallels that we call. We just use different words for humans. Um, prisons. Right. Um, slavery. Um, biomedical experimentation. Genocide. So essentially that's one of the things that I talk about. When we understand that when we pull away that, that artificial line between us and other animals in that way, the language has to be the same. And so when we say that, then it is quite shocking to really understand having captivity is not normative. It's, you know, it's sort of, you know, when we look back in history, the kinds of things that were done to certain ethnic groups or to children or women or a different, you know, they still go on today. And still is. Um, Think about the millions of people in prison because they smoke an herb. I mean, have you ever thought of it? I mean, Saz is right. It is an insane society. Mm -hmm. So, So in terms of that, if you look at it from the perspective of science, then the these institutions of captivity are, are what I call the really it's in captivity then is um, institutionalized trauma. Mm-hmm. And and because you work so much with that with the after effect of trauma, you know people say, well, it was a trained animal and it shouldn't have killed its its trainer. And and I thought it was amazing that with elephants they have this long term memory and they would wait for an opportune moment to do somebody in who would completely brutalize them. Mm-hmm. I mean, so... Th- it's, not so, it's not so different. I mean, no. that's essentially the, what I was trying to do with the book, is really to understand. And, and people who work very closely with elephants and, and other quote-unquote wild animals, um, when they're honest, a lot of them will say the same thing um, in terms of, you know, a lot of the testimony comes from people who worked intimately. They were zookeepers or even trainers. And so... Their intimate knowledge really translates and, and corresponds to what we know scientifically. So it's no surprise whatsoever. We're just like with humans. Some people, when something terrible happens to them, they want to seek revenge. Some people do not. They go inward. They become extremely depressed. They're suicidal, self-mutilation. All of those kinds of symptoms um, we see in animals who have sustained severe trauma, whether through abuse, neglect, or abandonment, or other kinds of violence. And, and of course, we know this in the human population, and, you know, that which isn't love fails to thrive. I mean, the, the, the primary fundamentals are so simple. It, I mean, I have to say that I am confounded every day of my life these days in trying to understand why the world is as pathetically disassembled as it is morally. I mean, I can understand things that happen physically in the world, but if they come down from a spiritual realm first and the physical is the last to materialize, it's we're really primitive. I mean, we are a really primitive humanity in general. Well, what's interesting is coming up, and this is, this is to me very exciting. Um, you were talking about before the station break about, you know, feeling overwhelmed and, and whatever, and I wanted to say a little about that. To me, I, I see where we're at right now as a couple of images. One is it's 
we're in a hallway. We're, we're closing one door, which is one paradigm, one way of being, one way of looking at the world, and we're reaching forward to a new door. I think that's a really important image to have, is, that, is to encourage, like our Sacred Bones project and the work we do, is really encourage people to let go of that old door right. and reach forward and make that kind of choice. We each have an individual choice, and there's, there's a lot of light. The other image I wanted to bring up is sort of like an Escher drawing, or sometimes, you know, how, you know, one, you know, one morning you wake up in a bad mood, and then something nice happens, and all of a sudden the world looks different. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> you know, the, ha- the glass is half full versus sure. half empty. Sure. And I think that's really important to keep in mind, is understanding that we're really, um, the, the world can turn on a dime. I mean, yes, there's terrible destruction and a tremendous momentum, and we don't have any time to dilly-dally. We need to act. We need to make radical change now. But to really understand that we can, and it's mm-hmm. all within our individual hands. And I think that is so important, is understanding the empowerment, which is what we try to do with our programs, is try to support individual empowerment to make change in the world. It's a very beautiful thing. I mean, I am I am so taken with your ancient bones project is that what it's called uh, sacred bones sacred bones ancient bones because this is also there's lights all over the world i mean this is one thing that's so exciting is we work with such wonderful people and again what we're trying to do is join others in really saying we're a community there's a community out there and to just sort of act as you know ways to help people connect with each other to mm-hmm. understand that there is a groundswell there is a sea change that is happening it's just that it's easy to forget sometimes. Yeah, and I think being in the media myself, I have to say, because in the media, for the most part, I'd say 85% of the news is horrific, and it's meant to be, and it and it's very depressing, and sometimes you lose sight of the great love and spiritual ardor that is around us all the time. I mean, I used to cover all the dark things on the planet, and then I um, changed my life entirely as a result of it, and I've now spent 10 years studying Kabbalah and the spiritual inner tradition of self-mastery that the ancient Hebrews actually left us. Mm-hmm. And now I sort of look at, I'm an animal communicator, and I talk to dogs and cats and birds and things like that. And I had a thought of doing this project of talking to the animals in the zoo. And I have to tell you that I don't know that I can do it <laughs> because I don't I don't know what to do with the story. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so we hear this, and then, you know, when I talk to cats and dogs, most of them are domestic, and they're very straightforward. They tell you, you know, I don't like what the owner's doing with my other cat, and I don't like when they leave the door open, and they're very specific. But when you go to the zoo, how many of the animals have stories of suffering and how many of them have stories of compassion? And, and that's something I suspect is that some of them know that they are in a situation of teaching. Yes. And, and I, I suspect I that, that some of their story will be very compassionate towards humanity. Well, you know, what's interesting is that this is a, another little thing that's coming out, like I said, and I, I talk about science within this larger scholarship, academia. For example, one of the things that's coming out is that all these theories that chimpanzees and great apes are violent, and that's our, those are sort of our evolutionary roots. It's that theory that's been used to say, well, it justifies our violence. It says, well, that's the way we are. Well, it's really turning out that a number of people are looking at that data, and they're saying, no, that's not true. Mm-hmm. That was caused by human interf- interference and disturbance. Right. And really, they're very much of a Pacific 
uh, very much of a compassionate, pro-social, that is to say, very positive to each other. And when you look at most animal societies, Mm -hmm. they are. And and the remarkable thing, particularly like with the elephant, who's so huge, most everyone will say they have the brains, (laughs) they have the emotions, they have the consciousness. They are probably way beyond us in terms of moral, ethical, and spiritual dimensions. Then why don't they do what we do to them? And I think that's the whole point. That's the lesson right there. If I we think so, too. Like I, I think so, too. I mean, I, I don't normally talk about this stuff publicly, but I had a very um, direct revelation, if you will, that this was the next work I should do after this 10 years in Kabbalah. What's next? Every 10 years I've changed careers, and I was told animal communication. And very particularly, they were showing me that I should talk with these animals in captivity because there's an animal wisdom wanting to be given over to humans versus humans thinking we're the wise ones. And so when I found out about your work after interviewing Mark Beckhoff, I have to say I came running to your book (laughs) because I went, oh, my Lord, this woman is really hit on it, this whole notion of interspecies psychology. And um, I just want to thank you, Kay, for the extraordinary bravery, passion, and love that you bring to the world with the work that you do at the Carullo Center and in your research. Well, thank you all. You're welcome. So I will proceed with my work, and I'll send it to you, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Because it was interesting, before the enormous problems of the quakes in Japan, for two weeks I heard animals screaming in my ear, and I thought, well, if this is what they do, there's no way I can communicate because there's so much pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. And then after the event, the screaming in my ear stopped, and I started thinking, isn't that extraordinary that perhaps they are just our um, alert system, and they really, and we know that for a fact, that they do tell us before a tragedy, but that for people with a sensitivity, and I know there's some people in my audience who have that awareness, to just, you know, be mindful of it and make note of it, and you might find that you are one of those that are tuned into the animals who are trying to help. Is there any parting words you'd like to give us? Um, just um, encourage everyone to join the animals. Um, it's wonderful. I mean, it's a whole wonderful world. And be in service to animals because it's, it's beautiful and they're beautiful. Well, I agree with that. <laughs> 100% and more. Kay Bradshaw has been our guest. Gay's book is called Elephants on the Edge, What Animals Teach Us About Humanity, a Yale University release. You can learn more about the Carullo Center and the Sacred Bones Project at www.kerulos. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, as we talk about so often on 21st Century Radio, that consciousness is the link. And as Gay has pointed out, interspecies psychology or transspecies psychology is is the reality. It's not an anomaly and that we all are interconnected. And as I used to say, be good to each other. We do need more love in the world. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show.